Throughout the country, on lonely roads where young women have died, ghost stories have been born from their tragedy. In the early 1940s, folklorists Richard Beardsley and Rosalie Hankey cataloged these stories for an issue of California Folklore Quarterly, and the title of their article would give the phenomena a name, The Vanishing Hitchhiker. This season, we will track down these tales, step back through history, and sift through the unique details of each story to determine whether a real local tragedy has been interwoven with the familiar urban legend. I'm your host, Jason, and this is Epitaph. Modern retellings of the story of the ghost of the buckhorn are a bit hard to trace. In the 1930s, it was widely accepted that a lady in white walked the Buckhorn Highway in the Allegheny Mountains just east of Altoona, Pennsylvania. In the 1970s, the story appeared to move from the Buckhorn Mountain to one just north, the Wapsasonic, or Wapsi, as the locals call it. Some local folklorists suggest that it's the same ghost, while others believe that there are two different spirits of two different women walking treacherous mountain roads. Regardless, the story on both mountains is similar. A young woman is descending the treacherous roads from the top of the mountain with the man that she loves. In one version, she's a newlywed returning from her honeymoon at the Wapsie Hotel. In another, she's attempting to elope in the middle of the night. At a dangerous curve, known locally as the Devil's Elbow, their vehicle goes over the embankment. Her beloved is most likely killed, but his body is thrown from the vehicle and lost in the rough mountainous terrain. She returns, often with a candle or lantern, to search for him. Those who encounter her report seeing her at the top of the mountain, and if they stop to pick her up, she can't be seen in their rearview mirrors. And, as with many of these stories, when they reach the place of her tragedy, in this case the Devil's Elbow, she's gone. What sets the story of the Ghost of the Buckhorn apart, though, is that her appearances weren't limited to one or two witnesses driving a lonely highway in the middle of the night. According to newspaper reports, for two weeks in 1938, she was seen almost nightly along the Buckhorn Highway. Witnesses told stories not just of picking her up, but of having chased her through the rough terrain of the mountain forest, never quite able to catch up with her. And she was seen by hundreds of schoolchildren. About 100 miles east of Pittsburgh, at the foot of the Buckhorn and Wapsasonic Mountains in the Alleghenies, sits the city of Altoona, Pennsylvania. During the American Revolution, it was the site of Fort Roberto, which was built to defend a mine that supplied lead to George Washington's Continental Army. Several generations later, in 1849, the Pennsylvania Railroad Company purchased a farmstead to build a switching yard for their trains. The trains crossing the mountains required heavier-duty locomotives, which were maintained at Altoona. The first shops were built in 1850, and the Horseshoe Curve, was completed in February of 1854. The Horseshoe Curve is an engineering feat envisioned by J. Edgar Thompson, which revolutionized the way trains crossed the Alleghenies with, after a 220-degree turn, the two sides of the arc running almost parallel as the trains ascend or descend the side of the mountain. By doing this, the curve reduced the steep 6-8% grade of the mountain to a manageable 1.8%, and it was all built using only hand tools, gunpowder, and pack animals. It is now a National Historic Landmark. The opening of the Horseshoe Curve brought rapid growth to the area. Altoona was incorporated as a borough four years later in 1858, and over the next decade the population of Altoona tripled. It had grown large enough to be chartered as a city in 1868. 
Altoona's importance as a railroad hub made it the target of Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia in 1863, but they were turned back at the Battle of Gettysburg. In World War II, its horseshoe curve was a target of eight Nazi saboteurs. By the end of the 19th century, Altoona's rail yards and shops were one of the largest railroad repair facilities in the world, employing more than 15,000 people, and the population of the city grew from 39,000 in 1900 to an all-time high of 82,000 in 1930. By the mid-20th century, though, changes to the railroad industry and the development of interstate highway systems brought the railroad era to an end, and the area has experienced industrial decline and urban decentralization ever since. Today, Altoona is home not only to the Horseshoe Curve, but also to the Railroaders Memorial Museum, the world's oldest wooden roller coaster, a minor league affiliate for the Pittsburgh Pirates, and Penn State University's Altoona campus. And also, a ghost story. The Ebensburg Police Department had heard the story before. A beautiful woman, stylishly attired in white, is thumbing a ride at the top of the Buckhorn Mountain. And usually, she finds one. But somewhere just before the devil's elbow, she disappears from the vehicle. She's picky about which cars she'd get in, too. She'd refuse to ride in coupes, but would ride in the back seats of sedans. They didn't bother chasing the ghost anymore. They had more mundane matters to attend to. A man and his wife traveling from Asheville to Altoona picked her up one night in February of 1938. She gave them an envelope with a name and address in Altoona. The driver turned to ask her a question and found that she was gone. His wife, however, had actually witnessed her disappear and fainted. The address, of course, belonged to a woman who'd been killed in an auto accident on the Buckhorn several years before. The sighting, however, and its front page coverage in the Altoona Tribune sparked two weeks of ghost hunting on the Buckhorn. The next day, the same newspaper ran another front page article saying that the previous day's story had generated a number of other reports from people who'd encountered the same woman, adding the detail that she was commonly seen smoking a cigarette. And they announced that they'd be interviewing the woman who was in the sedan, who'd seen the ghost disappear and who knew the address on the envelope in order to identify the young woman. The next morning, there was yet another front page story in the Altoona Tribune. Four different men had come forward to say that they'd seen a hitchhiking woman in white near the junction of Dysart and Buckhorn Roads on the previous Monday, and that they'd all picked her up. A young woman from Johnstown said that the ghost had gotten a ride with her and three companions on Sunday. In each case, she disappeared from the vehicle. That week, on a Tuesday night, Anthony L. Condren was driving the Buckhorn when the spectral figure walked toward his car and he pulled over, but instead of letting her in, he got out and chased it. I'm a pretty good sprinter myself, but whatever it was, it was just too fast for me. If I could have caught the ghost of the buckhorn, I'd have had it down in Altoona in short order, he said. Condren, like those who'd ridden with her, had gotten a good look at the spirit, but he wasn't convinced there was anything ghostly about her. She looked like a pretty girl to me, dressed in white, and when I got out of my car, she started to run. It wasn't no ghost, though. It was a human being. And while it looked like a woman, it may have been a man for all I know. I first saw her walking towards the car to the left, and I got a fairly good glimpse of the ghost. When she started to run, I followed her toward the top of the ravine, but I don't believe in ghosts and I don't think it was one. The newspaper also interviewed Charlie Yawn, who owned a tavern at the Buckhorn Summit. He said the stories that the paper had been running had generated a nightly parade of automobiles through the area, everyone hoping to catch a glimpse of the ghost. Charlie told of two young men who'd gone out to find the ghost and, at least according to them, had. They came in here, one of Charlie's waitresses told the paper, looking as pale as the ghost itself. They were shaky and more than scared. By the next Monday, more stories of encounters over the weekend had come into the paper. Many had given chase, but one had slipped on ice and the ghost escaped. 
Another said it was just too fast. A woman who visited the Tribune office claimed that she knew that the ghost was a hoax, a man wrapped in a sheet, but she left without offering any proof. But it did seem that, even as the story was spreading through the region, picked up by newspapers in Pottsville, Pottstown, Reading, and Wilkesbury, there were now hoaxers out looking to play pranks on the ghost hunters. On the southern side of the county, near the Bedford County line, Mr. C. E. Clark reported seeing the ghost of reported seeing the ghost standing beside the road, going through the usual motions of thumbing a ride, but that the specter had kept a pallid hand in front of its face, and, according to Mr. Clark, it looked like a man in a sheet. On Thursday, February 17th, nine days after they had begun the ghost craze with their front page article, the Altoona Tribune attempted to lay the story and the ghost to rest. Ernest Walk, a 22-year-old Altoona man, was returning from his aunt's home the previous evening when he and his family, including his brother Henry, his aunt Violet, and his sisters Ellen and Edna, noticed the ghost beside the road. I was too scared to scream, his aunt Violet said. I wanted to stop then, but my wife was too scared, Ernest said. It was about 10.15 p.m., and when we got home, Henry and I decided to go back and tackle it. When they returned, the ghost hadn't moved. Ernest said that his brother yelled, hit it, and he swung his car off the highway and onto Avalon Road and smashed right into the ghost. What Ernest and Henry wound up demolishing was a scarecrow and the radiator cap of their car. They claimed to have heard someone say, let's get out of here from behind the bushes, and then they got out and cut the ghost down from a rope that had suspended it from a tree branch above and took it to the police station. The police initially relegated the scarecrow to a corner of the station and then took it to City Hall where hundreds of school children showed up to get a glimpse of the supposed ghost of the buckhorn. But examining the details reported in the newspaper and applying a little critical thinking, the story that it was just a scarecrow feels just a little too convenient. For starters, Ernest and Henry Walk hadn't actually captured their ghost on Buckhorn Road. They were on Avalon Road, which was a side street connected to the Buckhorn Highway but it wasn't where the sightings had often been located. And what of the people who claim to have given a ride to the ghost? It's certainly plausible that some of them could have been lying, but it seems unlikely that all of them would have been. Others, like Anthony Condren, claim to have chased the ghost, or at least something resembling a ghost, through the forest and that it was fast enough to evade him. That simply can't be accounted for by a stationary scarecrow slung over a tree branch. And the ghost was always described as a woman in a white dress with pale skin and a cigarette. But according to the reports, the scarecrow that Ernest and Henry brought into the police station was dressed in a faded red dress and brown gloves, which would have looked nothing like the ghost of the buckhorn. It also makes me wonder, if there was a growing suspicion that people were dressing up as hoaxes, and if what they'd seen didn't match the description of the ghost, what exactly were Ernest and Henry thinking when they decided to run it down with their car? It seems more likely that the newspaper editor, probably a bit skeptical, was, like the Ebensburg police, tired of chasing the story. For him, the Walk Brothers Scarecrow story provided a tidy explanation that would allow him to go back to publishing real news. It was enough for him to effectively put the story to rest. Except for the occasional editorial references to the hoax of the buckhorn, no other mentions of the legend made it into print until the Halloween edition of the Altoona Mirror in 1973. The entirety of the 1973 report is a poorly mocked-up photo of a woman dressed like a scarecrow in a white sackcloth with a rope belt in a zombie or Frankenstein monster-like pose with her arms out in front of her and her face replaced by a jack-o'-lantern style mask. And it's overlaid on top of a scenic shot of a mountain forest and a caption. The caption hints that the story and variations of it have continued to be told, 
She was the victim of an auto crash in a fire, it says, left waiting at the altar on her wedding day, seeking vengeance for whatever reason on those who encounter her. And she's no longer on Buckhorn Mountain. She's moved north to the Wapsasonic Mountain. She's now the White Lady of Wapsie. A few years later, in 1980, Dave Rice, a writer for the Altoona Mirror, polished the story up a bit for the Halloween edition of the paper. Now, rather than having been left at the altar or dying in an automobile crash, she's waiting for a ride to her wedding. According to this version of the legend, she'd been on her way down the mountain on the night before her wedding, but the horse that was pulling her carriage was spooked and took itself, the carriage, and her over a cliff. She'll accept a ride, of course, but rides silently until they pass the curve where she died and then she vanishes like mist. The story again appears in the Halloween version of the Altoona Mirror in 2004, but then it has changed a bit. In this version, told by a local teacher and folklorist, John Hunter Orr, rather than going to her wedding in a horse-drawn carriage, she's leaving from her honeymoon with her new husband in a car. Whether something darted in front of the car and he swerved to miss it, or it simply blew a tire, Something caused it to swerve at Devil's Elbow, sending the couple's car over the side. No one witnessed the accident, so no one came to their aid. And, as they were supposed to have been going for their honeymoon, no one realized they were missing. She woke up sometime later, only to discover that her beloved had been decapitated by the accident. Delirious, perhaps from a concussion, she wandered a bit farther down the mountain to find his head, and wound up wandering the ravine until she lost her sanity and eventually her life and now she continues to wander the mountains, hoping to make her husband whole again and end her nightmare. Jared Frederick, a professor of history at Penn State Altoona, shares even more variations. In one version, she committed suicide after the wreck caused the death of her newborn. In another, she drove the carriage off the cliff after her husband confessed that he'd been unfaithful while they were returning from their honeymoon. Based on everything that I can find, it certainly seems as though the White Lady of Wapsie had its origins as the story of the Ghost of the Buckhorn. The iterations that involve a bride, either going to her wedding or to her honeymoon, seem to be more recent inventions. But was there a woman who died on the mountainside that may have fit any of these stories? Actually, there were three. As you might imagine, a mountain road featuring a treacherous bend that had garnered the nickname the Devil's Elbow has seen a fair number of accidents. But if that couple coming down from Buckhorn Mountain in 1938 did encounter a ghost alongside the highway, the stories of these three women, Stella Rakowski, Wanda Krasuski, and Margaret Gray, may give us some idea of just who the ghost of the Buckhorn and later, the White Lady of Wapsie, could have been. On a cold November night, just three months before the first newspaper report of the ghost of the Buckhorn, a pair of honeymooners, along with the bride's mother and aunt, were on their way from Chicago to New York. Snow had blanketed the state throughout the day, bringing with it slick hazardous roadways, and the group decided to stop for dinner at a roadside inn near the Indiana-Pennsylvania airport. Then, refreshed, caffeinated, and determined to get to Jersey City, they piled back in the car and drove on. Stella Rakowski was a first-generation American, the daughter of immigrants from Poland. She had married her husband, Leo, just a few days earlier, and they were on their way to honeymoon in New York. Her mother, Stella Zulik, and her aunt, Victoria Galkowski, were traveling with them. Victoria had come from her home in Jersey City, New Jersey, for the wedding, and her mother had planned to go back and visit family while the couple was on their honeymoon. On the downward grade of the mountain, at Devil's Elbow, a truck and trailer being driven by Horace Krutz had slowed down to navigate the sharp turn. Rounding that curve, 
On slick, snowy roads, Leo Rukowski didn't see its brake lights soon enough to stop. Their sedan struck with such force that the front of the car wedged itself under the trailer and the doors of the car were jammed shut. Krutz and other passing motorists worked with iron bars for nearly 30 minutes to try to get the doors pried open, using lanterns to be able to see what they were doing and to try to flag down help. Stella Rakowski's mother likely died almost instantly. According to her death certificate, her neck had been broken. Stella and Leo Rakowski both suffered from fractured skulls in the impact. Leo awoke on Saturday and was taken to see Stella in her room on Saturday evening. On Sunday morning, Stella passed away. She had never regained consciousness after the accident. Stella Rakowski died November 21, 1937, just eight days after her wedding. She and her mother, Stella Zulik, were both sent back to Chicago for burial. Where they were ultimately laid to rest is unknown. But while I think it's possible, maybe even probable, that their story helped influence the current White Lady of Wapsie legend, it's important to note that the accident that ended their lives was on a different Devil's Elbow. In researching this story, I found that Devil's Elbow is the name for three different dangerous curves all within a few miles of each other. The first was on Route 36, sometimes referred to as the Buckhorn Highway, and that's where the other two accidents that we'll be discussing occurred, and where the ghost of the Buckhorn that the newspapers had covered in 1937 was located. There was another on the Juniata Gap Road as it descends from the summit of the Wapsasonic Mountain, which is where the White Lady of Wapsie is said to walk. And the third, where the Rakowskis were traveling, was along Route 422, known in those days as the Ben Franklin Highway, which skirts the southernmost edges of Altoona. Using the same name for three different places all coming into the same town could certainly account for the confusion as to just where exactly, whether the Buckhorn or the Wapsie, that the hitchhiker is said to appear. And while several details of the Rakowski story fit within the framework of the legend, specifically the honeymoon tragically ended by a deadly automobile accident at the Devil's Elbow, and even the use of lanterns by those trying to rescue the victims, I think it's unlikely that, if a ghost really was being encountered on the Buckhorn Highway, that it would have been Stella Rakowski. The other two fatal accidents that could fit the legend occurred within one week of each other, 11 years earlier, in mid-October of 1926. Like Stella Rakowski, Wanda Krasuski was a first-generation American citizen of Polish descent. Her father, Alexander, had died two years earlier in 1924, so she lived with her mother, Amelia, and her older siblings, Alex and Helen, in the small Polish community of Coupon, Pennsylvania. The little town was right alongside the Buckhorn Highway between Ebensburg and Altoona. Wanda had spent the afternoon with her older brother, Alex, and two of his friends, John Locke and Cyrus Blair Kramer. Locke and Kramer decided that they wanted to go to Altoona and talked Wanda into joining them. Alex didn't want to go, so they dropped him off at home. What caused the accident isn't known precisely, but whether it was the result of reckless driving or a hit and run, as Kramer and Locke would later claim, as the car rounded the devil's elbow, it left the road and plunged more than 30 feet down a steep embankment before smashing into a tree with enough force that the top of the car was ripped entirely off. When help arrived, Kramer and Locke were already gone. They instead found Wanda Krasuski. She'd been ejected from the car and the left front wheel of the vehicle was resting on her neck. She was recovered and taken to the hospital around 8 p.m., but the rescuers already knew that they'd been too late. After hearing there'd been an accident, Wanda's brother, Alex, showed up at the local police headquarters to find out what had happened. And there, Sergeant Gray told him that his sister had been taken to the Altoona hospital. At the hospital, he was told that Wanda had been killed. 
By then, Kramer had arrived too, and had been admitted to the fracture ward with a suspected skull fracture. According to the newspapers, his injuries may have actually saved his life, as, upon hearing of his sister's death, Alex Krasuski threatened to kill Kramer, and it took several orderlies to keep him from making good on that threat. Initially, when questioned by police, Kramer, suffering from a skull fracture and a concussion, insisted that he hadn't been driving a vehicle at all, but had been himself struck by a motorist when walking down the Buckhorn Road. But John Locke and Wanda's brother Alex contested that version of events. They both told police that he had been driving, and the hospital staff said that Kramer had told them a contradictory story that involved a collision with another car which led to the crash. After he was released from the hospital, Kramer was charged with involuntary manslaughter, but he was exonerated when both he and Locke testified that his car had been sideswiped by another vehicle which had forced it off the road. Wanda Krasuski died on October 16, 1926. She was just one month shy of her 15th birthday. She's laid to rest near her father at St. Joseph Cemetery in Coupon, Pennsylvania. It's interesting to note that, Though the legend is that the ghost continues to walk the area searching for her husband's head, Wanda died by being effectively decapitated in a car accident. And while Wanda's story doesn't seem to match some of the details as well as the others, she was the only female accident victim who actually died at Devil's Elbow. But if there is a ghost to be found wandering the Buckhorn Highway, I think it's most likely to be Margaret Gray. Margaret's accident occurred when she and a World War I veteran named Chester Troutman were returning to Altoona from the nearby town of Galitzin. What they were doing together is something of a mystery. Margaret was a married mother of four, but she wasn't married to Troutman. According to her mother, Margaret had told the family that she was visiting a relative who was in Galitzin from Buffalo, New York. Troutman, brought to trial on involuntary manslaughter charge for his role in the accident, would offer a different story. During the hearings, he testified that he and Margaret had gone to visit mutual friends that night. On their way back, Troutman said that he had gotten out of the car for a few minutes at the top of the mountain, and that while he was out of the car, Margaret had slid over behind the wheel, so he let her drive down the mountain. Troutman said that near Devil's Elbow, Margaret had gone off the road to allow another car to pass up the mountain, and then, before she could correct, their car seemed to take a nosedive, and he didn't know anything else except that he found himself in the hospital. Margaret's husband, John Gray, though he had been unaware that she was out with Troutman until the accident occurred, said that he doubted Troutman's story because his wife couldn't operate a car and that neither he nor his wife had a license. The first witnesses to arrive at the scene, W.B. Heilman and William Wolfe, testified that when they arrived, Troutman was standing beside the overturned car holding his head. Margaret was laying in the middle of the road. Margaret was admitted to the hospital just after 2 a.m. on Sunday morning with a compound, depressed fracture of her skull. She wouldn't ever regain consciousness. Margaret Gray died at 11.10 a.m. on Monday, October 11, 1926, as a result of her injuries. She was survived by her husband, John, and their four children. She was laid to rest at Calvary Cemetery in Juniata, Pennsylvania. So what was she doing with Chester Troutman at the top of the Buckhorn Mountain that late at night? Well, according to what her great-grandson Greg Sheets told historian and folklorist Jared Frederick, the answer was something illicit, but maybe not in the way you might suspect. In January 1919, Congress ratified the 18th Amendment to the United States Constitution, which established prohibition. A year later, the Volstead Act, established to more clearly define just which intoxicating beverages were illegal, 
and to restrict their manufacture, sale, and transport went into effect. Though it didn't specifically prohibit their use, the Volstead Act stated that no person shall manufacture, sell, barter, transport, import, export, deliver, or furnish any intoxicating liquor except as authorized by this act. While in places like Chicago, this meant that men like Al Capone could get rich producing and distributing liquor, in the mountains of Pennsylvania where blue-collar workers just wanted a cold beer after a long day in the rail shops, the job of producing and distributing alcohol fell to men like Chester Troutman, and at least according to the family legend, women like Margaret Gray. The witnesses, who'd both arrived at the scene shortly after the accident occurred, specifically testified that there was no smell or other evidence of liquor. So, if I had to speculate, I'd guess that Chester Troutman's testimony was indeed mostly true. The mutual friends that they had been visiting were likely whomever it was that they were selling the alcohol to. Troutman had gotten out of the car for a few minutes at the top of the mountain, just as he stated, to make their final delivery. There was no evidence of alcohol at the scene of the accident because, by then, they'd finished delivering it and were on their way home. It's easy to imagine Margaret, too. Maybe she'd slid behind the wheel while he was unloading, or perhaps she'd been the driver the whole time. Or even to imagine her waiting beside the road with a lit cigarette, ready to head back. And maybe she's still there, waiting to go home. One night in February of 1938, a man and his wife traveling from Asheville to Altoona picked up a young woman hitchhiking alongside the Buckhorn Highway. She gave them an envelope with a name and an address in Altoona that had belonged to a woman who had been killed in an auto accident on the Buckhorn several years before. And then, as the car rounded the devil's elbow, she disappeared. For the next two weeks, reports of seeing the hitchhiking phantom poured into the Altoona Tribune. Other people made claims to have picked her up. Some claimed to have chased her across rocky wooden mountainsides. And others said, unconvincingly, that it was simply a hoax. But if these stories are true, if the ghost of a woman really was being encountered alongside the Buckhorn Highway, these women, having left this life in such a sudden, jarring, and tragic way, certainly would have had reason to be there. Epitaph is an independent, bi-weekly podcast. If you like what you've heard, maybe leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you may be listening and maybe tell your friends about us. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can find us on the web at epitaphpod.com. You can also find us on Twitter at, at @epitaphpod, and by searching for Epitaph Podcast on Facebook. If you've got a few extra dollars, consider joining our Patreon. There you'll get access to Epitaph, the others, our special subscriber-only shows, and we've got a few extra things in the works there, too. This episode was researched, written, edited, recorded, and produced by me. I'm your host, Jason. Thanks for listening.